Welcome. My name is Brad Michaels, and here with us today at Brooklyn Free Speech Radio is Jabari Brisport, running for city council in Brooklyn's 35th district. Welcome. Thanks for having me, Brad. Um, who is Jabari Brisport? Jabari Brisport is me. I am a uh, one of the few people in Brooklyn that was actually born here. Has left, I think. Um, I'm a third generation resident of my uh, my neighborhood, Prospect Heights, right in the middle of like you know Central North Brooklyn, and I am running for office in the area. It's the New York's 35th district. Prospect Heights is right in the center of it. You've also got Fort Greene, Clinton Hill, Bed-Stuy, Crown Heights, and like two blocks out of Dumbo. But oh, really? Yeah. You know, it's really – I don't know who draws these districts. Mm. But um, yeah, or Vinegar Hill, which is right. another name for what I, I learned as I, was, uh, as I was running, surprisingly. Yeah, I don't even know where that comes from. And Dumbo I get, you know, down on the Manhattan Bridge overpass. But yeah. I don't know what, where the vinegar is. Yeah, where is the vinegar? <laughs> um, okay, so you grew up in Prospect Heights. Yeah. Uh, yeah, and it's uh, – I mean, it's changed a lot. A lot of Brooklyn has. Uh, it was uh, obviously a lot blacker when I, when I, um, when I grew up. You know, and it's it's funny. You know, my my grandmother was uh, when she moved and got the house in the 1950s. That was when a lot of white flight was happening from New York City into the suburbs. And now I'm uh, now in my generation. I'm here to watch the the reverse trend. But it's um it's interesting. It was a different neighborhood. I mean, I grew up I grew up in the 90s and. You know, that was when kids would still play on the sidewalks and, you know, parents so you, just said. Okay. Sorry to interrupt. So you're how old here? Just to give context. I'm 29. 29. So, yeah. you're, you're, so you were in the 90s, yeah, you as a child. Yeah. No, not at all. I mean, that was that was the age of, you know, parents just letting their kids go out and play whatever and saying, be home when the streetlights turn on. That was that was our uh, our rule to get home. But it was also like, you know, the neighborhood was, um, it was a different neighborhood. Uh, we have a, a lovely playground that's on the corner now, but it wasn't always so lovely. I know. Distinctly, when I was four or five, my my friend and I, Stacy and I, we were playing in the dirt in the playground, and she found a crack pipe. Oh. And um, we didn't know what it was. We just thought it was like a cool, shiny piece of glass. So we brought it to her parents to um, ask her what, ask them what it was, and they they didn't say anything. They just took it from us, and they forbid us to ever play in the park again. I wonder when you figured it out in retrospect. Right. Well, when I was older, when mm. I was older and thinking more about my childhood in the, mm-hmm. in the neighborhood, because we also had this really fun game when I was five, where if we heard like bangs outside. We would have to turn off all the lights and be quiet on the ground. Oh, it was, it was like this really fun game my fun, parents would play. Fun stuff. Yeah, and then later on, I learned I was living through the other Crown Heights riots. <laughs> wow. Once I, once I, yeah. So it was, it's been interesting how my parents kind of were able to shelter me from some of the more dangerous parts. Right. Yeah. Cleverly. Yeah. yeah cleverly. Really. Yeah, cleverly. So okay. So um, you're third generation Brooklyn. Mm-hmm. Who 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 emigrated here? Your grandparents. My grandparents from yeah, from Guyana in South America. Okay. Yeah. Big Caribbean population in Prospect Heights. Of Crown course, Heights. yeah, of course. Um, so what they came, they arrived, and what what did they do when they arrived? My uh, grandmother, I, I forget her job. She she came here um, in the early fifties, lived someplace out and closer to um, like the Prospect Park, Prospect Park on the uh, the east side, mm-hmm. like in the uh, Prospect Lefferts area. Then right. moved, got got this house near the park um, in the fifties, and you know. Raised my mom there, and my mom went to Brooklyn Friends School, and you know was a Brooklyn a Brooklyn child. Um, you know my my dad too. Uh, my dad on my dad's side, I'm second generation because my my dad just I mean his parents are still in Guyana. He moved over to the states when he was 19. Oh okay. Um, yeah, and actually you know it was undocumented for a while. I mean you know he did his work visa, or you no know, he had a study visa, and then that ran out. He started working and. You know, just was undocumented for like twenty years, I think, before um actually, you know, he married married my mother and you okay. know, got his got his documentations, which is like I'm super 
super sympathetic to the undocumented just because like I'm the I'm the son of a quote quote mm-hmm. unquote illegal immigrant. Absolutely. A young Jabari Brisport, mm-hmm. what did you aspire to be? Did you potentially see politics in your future or was that Not a stretch? at all. Okay. I, well, young Jabari Brisport was going to go into science and like I was going to be a paleontologist and dig up dinosaurs for the longest. I was obsessed when I was a kid and then I was thinking engineering mm-hmm. and all that. But I was, I was super into the sciences and like really analyzing things and taking them apart and seeing what I could build out of them. And um, eventually worked my way into the arts, which is uh, not too dissimilar from creating things. It's the, the same part of your brain, I think. Um, but That's I always had a interesting way to put. It. I like that. I mean, I th- I think so. I mean, I think it's like creativity. Whether you know you're building something with, with robots or you're building something on on a stage, um, but like you know, politics has always been inside of what I was doing. So even when I was doing theater, like um, I would do a lot of political theater, and I sought ways to like you know build politics and like you know make change uh, in in that form. And what got me really into um, electoral politics would I would be probably the Bernie Sanders campaign because mm-hmm. um, I was more of an activist before then. But I, I really sought to started to see the possibilities of like electoral change. And you know, after well, after Trump got elected, I uh, decided to go full full hog head into it and just run for office. Yes, uh, f- filling a, a a void that we need, a voice that we need for sure. So, mm-hmm. okay, so you mentioned the theater. You touched on that. Well, how how did that manifest exactly? Was that was that something you did? At, yeah, you know, in high school and yeah, I mean, I was doing it in high school. I really um found like a really a big love for it in uh, in middle school and high school, mm-hmm. and then I I went to college for it. Actually, I went to NYU, was like Tisch School of the Arts, and even there, like I had aspects of politics getting into it. Um, you know, when I first started like writing as a theater maker, one of the first things I wrote was a um a spoken word piece about same sex marriage. And it was about um a parallel story of two couples that get into a car crash. One is straight, one is gay. And, you know, within the hospital the uh you know the straight um guy can visit his uh his loved one in the hospital, the gay guy can't. This is this is before you know, we got marriage equality everywhere. This was back in like the the two mm. thousands and something. I did that all over NYU and brought it back to my high school and like that's amazing. It's a very powerful way yeah. I think to communicate my feelings about it. And um, also like you know, I had this group at NYU called the uh, the Glass Theater Company and we were fighting uh, gentrification in the East Village because NYU is just terrible about real estate. Really, <sighs> oh man, they're oh they're 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 bad and we oh, knew man. it and we felt so hypocritical just like trying to be there. And like talk about gentrification while going to a school that was possibly the worst agent of that. Um, but we were doing like uh, some site-specific performance. And the reason we were doing site-specific is because we were too poor to actually afford any space. So we just went outside and did it on the streets. And we were doing it in Tompkins Square Park. Uh, and Resourceful. Very resourceful. And what's great is like, you know, at one point we had like some like food from like, you know, local businesses donated. And it turned into a soup kitchen outside of our um, performance, which was really good and like looking back on it like now that i have more political even more political awareness and i see the connection between gentrification and homelessness it was there's actually something kind of tragically beautiful about homeless people lining up to um, get food while also watching art about gentrification that's amazing the tagline under your twitter handle is vegan socialist black lives matter <laughs> tell me a little bit about these things well all three of those are true um i am a vegan and mm-hmm. that's to go first because that's the first thing any vegan tells you you're you're lucky you made it in three minutes to this interview without without hearing that <laughs> but um i am a vegan. i've been a vegan for five years um animal rights activist um uh working i've worked with uh groups such as like uh, dxe which stands for direct action everywhere and we did a big protest against the um you know the fur trade especially the opening of um Canada Goose and Soho. If you go on my website uh jabari2017.nyc um you'll see a big picture of me with um a megaphone and that's actually from the uh the Canada Goose protest. Um 
aside from that, I am a socialist, and um, my 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 means of coming out as a socialist actually tied into the Black Lives Matter movement. Um, because I mean, I got heavily involved with that and protesting police brutality with this group called Arts Artists for Change, and like marches and organizing um, uh, rallies mm. and uh, ma- you know making petitions, doing all the stuff. And then I would say, you know, after you know Bernie Sanders kind of like warmed up the term democratic socialist for me, I started looking into it more. And like around like last summer, I started to notice the links between socialism, excuse me, between capitalism and racism, uh, specifically around the fact that you know, well, black people were brought here as capital, and like that's I think kind of. And that's kind of like what capitalism is in a nutshell. It's, you know, putting a price tag on things and people which, which shouldn't have a price tag on them. So I, you know, found my way into socialism and like dive more deep into theory with it. Mm. Ended up joining the Democratic Socialists of America. And I am like super happy. I and mean, they, they endorsed the campaign, which I'm super excited about. Right. Yeah. Let's get let's get right into that. I mean, you, you touched on it with the Black Lives Matter issue. So now you're here. You are. You've been inspired by the Bernie Sanders campaign. You're running for city council. You know, I mean, an issue that seems to be very important to you is Black Lives Matter. I've, I've see, read and seen stuff about police reform that you've spoken about. I mean, you're a young black man in America right now. Why? I mean, it's there, there's a war on black people. That's there's no <laughs> there's no <coughs> doubt about that. Uh, I I border along the side of more like police abolition, and mm-hmm. I know that phrase has gotten it gets some heat because people think like you know you're just getting rid of all the cops, but and you know then what do you do for for criminals? But really, I don't see it as like getting rid of like any crime prevention strategies per se it's more so about like reforming the institution of police themselves because you know the police have their roots in really two two forces one being slave catchers the un- the other being union busters so like you know fundamentally it's it's a institution that uh, harms black people and is anti-worker so ideally what i would love to see it reimagined as is something that is more more emergent from communities, like a community-based, community-led crime prevention forces rather than some tool of the state that parachutes in um, to oppress and also uh, enforce laws or rules that um, also may or may not be the in the best interests of the community at hand. Um, but that's what, I don't know, and that's a grander vision. But like in the near term, like, you know, there's, there's like specific like next step things we can do next week uh, type things that the campaign is endorsing, like simple things like elected civilian oversight. We already have a civilian complaint review board. Make it elected. Don't make it appointed. Or participatory budgeting, like let people vote on how some of the um, NYPD spends its budget, um, which is interesting because, you know, you get when I ask people what they would spend the money on, um, if they could vote on how police uh, were allocating the, their budget, their tax dollars, you know, you, you get some people that are just like, well, demilitarization or less cops or, you know, whatever. But then you get some people that are saying, you know, I would like to see more social workers on the police or mm. I would love to see more therapy for the police because they have a hard job. So I think there is like a strong desire for there just to be like more peace between communities and their police. And I think there's a strong desire to take care of some police because ultimately, like, you know, nobody wants crime. We just we just don't want the, the, the institution that protects um, or that fights crime to be one that also kills innocent black people. Absolutely. I, you know, something I saw you speak to once before um, was, you know, the idea of officers living in the communities in which they in which they work. Yeah. Something that seems so common sense, so common sense, <laughs> yet so elusive somehow when, um, you know, so many I think what is up closer close to 40 percent of the NYPD, I think you said. Oh my God! I'm thinking the exact. Number. Don't live in the boroughs I, I or something. I think forty percent. I mostly I remember. Yeah, I think forty percent. It breaks down be, that, that most of the black and Latino officers live in the five boroughs. Most of the white officers don't. They live up in Westchester. Mm-hmm. They live out in uh, Nassau, Long yeah, 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 Long Island, and stuff. So 
I'm forgetting the exact breakdowns of how many are white, how many are whatever. But um, yeah, so it's a it's a sizable percentage, and then you know you get them, you get their their standard line of resistance saying, well, we can't live in the city; it's too expensive. Um, which is, well, which is mean was one well one you know we uh we we if we needed to we could do um, you know community like like we do community preference we could do like some you know police preference for. Um, yeah, with police think. officers, yeah. yeah. So they, they actually live in the communities. We talk about community policing. We can also we should look for ways to house them too. But also, like, if it is too expensive, that's a whole other issue that needs to address. Like, well, we need to address it. the housing issue. That's it. So <laughs> let's go. Let's go right into that. I mean, that's that's something that I think is on everybody's mind. I, I find it just it just doesn't seem to stop in terms of rents just skyrocketing out of control. And mm-hmm. introduce yeah. the listeners a little bit to the. You know about the Bedford Union Armory project yeah. and what's going on there. Yeah, totally. I mean, you know, the rent is too damn high all across the city. In Crown Heights, we have um, some of the highest percentages of uh, rent burdened um, people, with people that are spending more than fifty percent of their mm-hmm. income just on rent, just on where they're living. I've talked to women, old black women, that are saying that you know they spend so much on rent that they have to go to the food pantry for food. Um, uh, and, you know, in parts of Crown Heights, there's this place called Ebbets Field. Um, it's a big housing complex where there have been like 1,800 uh, eviction cases over the past few years just because these people, they can't afford their rent. It keeps going up. Um, and so to add insult to all this injury that's going on in Crown Heights, which is at the, the, the forefront of gentrification in, in central Brooklyn right now, uh, the city is thinking of selling off a, a citywide block of land called the, uh, the Bedford Union Armory. It's a big old now defunct armory that um, some people from the community wanted a rec center in because, you know, there's also gun violence in the area. The, ki- the, teen- the kids need something to do. So a, an, uh, a rec center would be great um, for local people in the community. But the organization, the developer that wanted to uh, do the project decided that or claimed that in order to pay for the recreation center and also some office space that they would give out to the community, they needed to build all these luxury condos and market housing. Um it's a necessity. Jabbar. It's an, it's an, I know, I know, an absolute if, necessity. If I, if I understood develop, development, I would I would know that the only way to to pay for this this rec center is to build uh, yes. million dollar condos. So there's been a big fight against it. The right. community's been up in arms against it. Um, I've been partnering with uh, you know DSA and then local um, groups like uh, New York Communities for Change, um, the Crown Heights Tenants Union, uh, Local 79. It's a construction union um, to fight this because then the rallying cry has been to kill the deal. Um, and the, and the and putting pressure on the incumbent to just say no to the deal, not to say not to vote yes on it. Right. So the incumbent Lori Cumbo, uh, District Thirty Five, has she mm-hmm. has she made a statement about this yet? She's made um an an emphatic but duplicitous statement. Okay. Which and is? that is um she will oppose this this deal so long as it has luxury housing, and she will not oppose any deal that has luxury housing. Which leaves the door wide open to market rate housing, which and quote unquote uh, affordable housing that's not affordable to the community. So basically, ah. she's found a way to make it seem like she's against the deal, while also allowing the door open to vote for a deal that will still um, increase speculation in the neighborhood, drive up rents, and, ult- and ultimately push more more yeah. Caribbeans yeah. out of the neighborhood. Mm-hmm. So okay, so yeah, I mean, you you touched on it earlier as well. I mean, what you've seen firsthand gentrification happened in your neighborhood and surrounding neighborhoods. So what, I mean, describe a little bit about that experience of, I don't know, going yeah. away to college, coming back and, yeah, wow, incrementally, or maybe not so much incrementally, maybe just... It's incremental. Well, it's, <laughs> it's, it's all in, it's all of the above. I mean, it's funny. You I mean, you hear gentrification, you think of white people moving to the, um, the neighborhood and, you know, that's, that's part of it. But also I would say the most jarring thing was like the businesses changing and like, um, you know, I went to NYU. It was 
it wasn't like I was in another country, but like I was I was away, you know, for enough stretches of time that I would come back and see uh, uh, another childhood business that was replaced. Um, you know, there was this great uh, corner store, which is what traditional you know, what um, traditional Yorkers called the uh, bodega. I call it a corner store because it's usually on the corner. Uh, this one was not on the corner, but we called it the corner store anyway. Um, <laughs> that's yeah, the old mid-block it. corner store. It was a mid-block corner <laughs> store, but it was green. It was the green, the green corner store, and the guy that ran it. Green, like, you say? Yeah, right. Okay, we'll, go we'll, ahead. We'll go talk on. about that. <laughs> um, but the owner we called the uh, the Haitian man. Nobody knew his name, and he was he was great. He was good people. Like uh, growing up, like he would quiz me on math. Like I would, because you know, if I every time I bought candy, I had to tell him how much change. <laughs> I was getting back before before I could get my change back, so that was how he helped quiz me on math. And I remember one one day I came from I came home from college, and you know the store was all boarded up and sold. And you know I asked my dad what happened to the green the green man at the corner store, and he said that he got packed up and gone back to Haiti because uh you know the rent was too high. So that was part of it. And then like I had a local movie theater that shut down and became an American Apparel. Wow. Uh, I had a movie rental store that shut down and became a, a Five Guys Burgers and Fries. Now it's a T-Mobile. And I think at one point, what place was that? What it was? Well, oh, sorry, it was a, a like a video rental store. The video Edge. No, it was called. Um, Before that, yeah. I, maybe maybe it was Video Edge. I, I'm forgetting the name because I know we had a, we had a blockbuster. But we also had just like a little like on the corner on Flatbush. Yeah, on Flatbush. I don't know. Anyway, on Flatbush and Seventh uh, Avenue there, or Flatbush and Park. Yeah, yeah, maybe it was Video Edge. Yeah, maybe and a great selection in there. It <laughs> I know it was, it was yeah. pretty good. Um, and then the, I think the, the funniest <laughs> part was I that we had like this. Uh, this pizza store on the corner called uh, Four Seasons, and it shut down and became a fancier pizza store came Amarino, called Amarino. And I'm not sure if it was the same owners or just new people that wanted to um, just use the, use the equipment like a total buyout. But that right. was real. That was oh, the most man. ridiculous part. So how do you combat that? How do you combat gentrification and maintain you know, the cultural authenticity of neighborhoods in Brooklyn? What I like to say is uh, with gentrification, like um, – you know, it brings more white people to the neighborhood, but I don't believe it's ultimately caused by white people. I think it's caused by capitalism, and um, that's something that people have agreed with me across all all races. It's it's a money it's a money thing, um, and ultimately we need to decommodify the land. And like you'll see people try and like, you know, do things like you know just fight fight for more affordable housing, fight for you know here here and there like little incremental things. But the reason we don't see much change is because ultimately there's still a price tag on the land, and ultimately the land is you know serving um, a profit margin. So, like, going back to the Bedford Union Armory, one thing my campaign has called for and, like, also local activist groups is for a community land trust, uh, which is where the community can organize into a nonprofit entity and they can steward the land and they can work with nonprofit developers and they can make sure that the development on the land is done in a way that actually meets their needs, not, not a profit line. And ultimately, I would like to see that model extended to every inch of New York City. A lot of people who aren't familiar with the Green mm -hmm. Party assume they go straight to environmental, environmental hippies, right? I yeah. mean, and that's... Obviously, part it. it's part of it, right? That's a component. But um, I mean, how how does one fight climate change in the five boroughs? How do you localize that problem, which feels so large? Yep. Tons of great things you can do. One uh, big thing this campaign wants to do is like divest in, uh, the city's pension from, from fossil fuels so that, you know, I think it's oh, how many billions? I forget exact, it's billions of dollars that are invested um, in the pension fund and a sizable chunk are into fossil fuel industries. So mm -hmm. by divesting that, we automatically take some money out of the pockets of oil oil um, producers and natural gas drillers um, and put it in, we can put it into renewables in a way to invest that way. You can also look into um, 
you know, renewable energy here at here in New York City. I mean, it's you know, we're a, we're an urban setting. You're not going to find like massive scale wind farms. Um, but there are places for solar. You can also harvest um, tidal energy off the coasts of um, off, just off the coasts. Um, I'm, I like offshore wind, but I expect a lot of pushback from that. People might not want to see offshore windmills along the East River and the Hudson. Mm -hmm. um, but then aside from that, you can go to our waste um, section, too. And like New York City throws away a lot of food waste. And that's like some of the worst um, global warming uh, perpetrators because when food – decomposes it releases methane which is like you know tens of times um as potent as carbon dioxide in heat trapping so what this campaign is calling for is like a mixture of full food rescue so that any like perfectly good food that gets thrown away from supermarkets or restaurants can get rescued and diverted to food banks or whatever or, or charities with along with more better composting and there's a great technique now that does that's like anaerobic it, like you put all the food in like a like a big a big uh a big sphere almost basically and you like compose it um anaerobically without without air and stuff and it's actually faster and it, it can be done more efficiently like trapped inside of a yeah. thing and like anaerobic bacteria digest it pretty it's pretty cool yeah yeah well I, that's so interesting I, n I hadn't thought about the fact that it's a problem that compounds on itself when you have you have a hunger problem in the city mm -hmm. you have people throwing away food mm -hmm. and then to boot after this food is not finding its way to those people who need it mm -hmm. that excess food it's producing methane, <laughs> methane yeah, which is then – I mean it, it seems like it should be so simple. We should be right. able to connect those dots, but but somehow – Somehow it's getting lost in terms Yeah, of I mean city harvest and – City harvest is great. You know, so we need that on a more expansive yeah. level perhaps. I know, and that's what I would love to do, just get more funding into city harvest mm -hmm. or, you know, or if we need to like build a citywide like parallel to that, mm -hmm. um, whichever. Like food's, get, food's getting thrown away. People are going hungry. That, that makes no sense. It that's, doesn't. It that's, really, that's really – really <laughs> It is. It's <laughs> – with an aging city and an aging infrastructure, I just I, – I tell people, you know, who don't live here, I try to explain to them the realities of taking the train in 2017. <laughs> and mm -hmm. it just feels like there are more delays and there are more mm -hmm. um, issues with public transport. Um, anything, anything to say to that? Yeah, I mean, we need the government to pony up and actually fund the subway. That's that's his job. <laughs> I mean, they, if you're gonna, if he's gonna have control over it, uh, it needs to accurately fund it. If not, then we need to give control um, to the city, and we will figure it out, um, along with you know state subsidies for it, or we'll switch up the taxes so that the, the money that's going towards the state for it just goes to the city, and we will handle it. But right now, it's in the it's it's the job of Cuomo to fully fund the subway, and he's he's really failing on that. And and he would have to do pet projects like the Second Avenue subway or fancy renovations at Penn Station instead of just basic maintenance. Um, right. The things, the things that aren't pretty, the things that you need to <clears throat> That's keep it. the subway going. You know, lastly, I, want, you know, I wanted to talk about economic, in, economic injustice, mm -hmm. economic justice. Explain, explain what you mean by a CEO surcharge. What, we've seen a little bit of that in the news. How does that work, and um, where has that been instituted, and how, how do you think that could be of use yeah, uh, I saw. I got the idea from a law passed out in Portland earlier this year, which is basically, um, it's an extra, an, an, uh, a larger business tax um, on corporations based on the ratio of what their CEO is making to what their median worker is making. So, like, um, the way we'd apply it here in New York is we already have um, a, like a, bus a business tax, like a cost of doing business in New York City, whether the company is registered in New York City or not, like the cost of you know b doing business here, and 
similar model to what's out in Portland, where if the um, CEO is making 100 times what their average worker is making, excuse right. me, median, um, we would tack on another 10% onto what they're already paying. Or if they're making 200 times, we tack on 20% or 330% and so on and so forth. And, you know, I've already been, like, called out, like, well, what do you do when all the companies leave? And uh, I've, I've kind of recountered that, like, they'll <laughs> say that, and I'll call their bluff in a heartbeat because nobody's leaving the largest urban market. Right. And, if, you know, and even well, – one, because they don't want to miss out. And, you know, no, no company is spiteful enough to say I would I – would, I'm so mad at making less money. I'll choose to make no money in New York. Right, right. But also there's no way in hell, like, Verizon's going to, like, try and leave and let AT, AT&T get all their market share or anything like no one, no one's gonna, no one's gonna back out, and they'll sit and deal with it, no, and we'll get point. the, uh, we'll get the funds. Yeah. What are what are some of your other policy points in in terms of achieving economic justice in New York? Yeah. Well, I mean, so once we do the CEO surcharge, and also like I am, I do support like higher um, income taxes on the top one percent. Um, with these fund streams, it's just about redistributing that. Uh, you know, I'm a socialist. Let's redistribute wealth um, into into the masses so that it can it can flow. Like, I believe it's called currency because it works best when 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 it flows. It's like a current. Um, so I would love to redistribute um, any funds raised through these um, extra taxes into like small businesses and worker co-ops. Worker co-ops I'm even more a fan of. Mm-hmm. Just a little more anti-capitalist. Um, and more you know redistributive justice in that sense because I really think we can get the economy going that way. Especially you know help help out, help out with the unemployment situation. Get more youth involved in jobs. Like you know you know we talk about like like art programs for youth and more educational opportunities. But I see so many youth that are just ready to work. Like I mean, not to make a joke of them, but you see those Showtime boys and like they're working. I mean they're, oh, they're no ready. Question. They're out there trying no to make money. No question. Or like you know the first people first when it snows the first people to come to my door oh, to yeah. snow are a bunch of young black dudes. Oh yeah, shovels that, in hand. Right, they're ready. Like the, the kids are there. They're full of entrepreneurs. They're ready to work. Like let's put money into these poor and um, disadvantaged communities and actually get like jobs with that where they can put on their resume, jobs yeah. where they can have a reference, mm-hmm. jobs that give them um, skills they need they can use to climb ladders later on. Right, right. A little more secure employment. Yeah. In that respect, yeah. Anything else specific to the campaign um, that you'd like to address? The floor is yours. Um, I would say one thing that's really exciting with this campaign is I'm thinking I'm the only candidate in this race, and I'm not sure how many people are doing this around the city, um, that's pledged to slash my salary down to the median income of Brooklyn. And I think that's important to say, um, one, because I'm calling on higher taxes for the wealthy. I'm going to be in the, the faces of developers asking them if they, they really need to make a million or two or three million dollars right. on this deal. And I think I believe in leading by example. So I will take – I will slash my salary down from – it's around 148000 as a city council salary. I'm slashing it down to 48000 median income of Brooklyn. Um, in addition – and that's also just part of my belief too that like you know if you're going to represent a district or, or people, like you don't, just, you don't just look like them. Like it's not enough to just be like a black guy representing – Crown Heights and Fort Greene. Like I need to actually walk in the shoes yes. of the constituents economically. That's that's no small amount. That's no small amount. And the thing is, people are like, "Oh my God, how can you possibly live on forty eight thousand? I'm like, "Well, that's the median. So half of New York is making less than that. So that's that's the situation. It's, it's a great rebuttal. Yeah, it's a rebuttal. So like that's that's a, that's the city we live in right now. That's it. So let's 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 start from that base. Let's 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 address that. I think we're in a time right now where both the left and right would agree that change is needed. Obviously, mm-hmm. the means. To get there is would be a quite different approach. Mm-hmm. Whether it's a federal or the local level, why would you be the person to actually bring about that change? Yeah, I mean, I well, one thing you can you can go back to community land trust and you can look at real models that actually take land off out of the speculative market and put them into community um, control for the goal of meeting people's needs, not profit. The second thing is, like, I am more than happy to acknowledge that there is a full-on war on tenants from developers in this city, which means I'm fine with enforcing clawback, clawback provisions in 
inside contracts, right, to recuperate funds. I'm also not afraid to threaten or, or use eminent domain as a punishment for developers that are acting illegally or acting immorally. I think that, I, uh, I think that is something that we can ratchet up in order to defend our communities because it, it makes no sense that we have a, a homelessness crisis while also developers are richer than ever. They're making billion-dollar profits uh, year after year while more and more New Yorkers are sleeping in the streets. And to, pr to pretend like this is anything short of absolutely immoral does a disservice to the people of this city. Well said. Um, what, have you, what are some of the things that you've done that have affected change in the community? Yeah. Uh, I would say, one, you know, fighting for uh, against gentrification with the Glass Theater Company. Like, we weren't just – you know, doing art in Tompkins Square Park. We were also collecting signatures to fight against a rezoning um, in in the Lower East Side. And then, again, doing more stuff with Black Lives Matter, just really marching and I'm trying to get these uh, this awareness up of, like, various rules or ways to push back against police brutality. And then, of course, I mean, I've been doing so much stuff with the Bedford Union Army this past mm -hmm. few months, um, really fighting um, fighting against it. Um, getting op-eds pushed out for community land trust, um, really hoping to make ensure that housing is a human right um, in, in Crown Heights. And I think, I mean, I think though those are th a few big things. And like uh, this ties into the reason why I'm running is that I spent so much of my political career as like an activist. And what I realized like in November, in December, back when I was thinking, when I was first thinking of running was you can only spend so much time like doing the marches and doing the rallies and writing the letters, making the phone calls before it stops before it stops seeming like it's enough and mm -hmm. i need it and I, and I really feel like that's why i'm running because like uh, i'm not seeing the change changes made um from my from my politics as usual well thank you so much for being here where can people learn more about you yeah you can go to jabari2017.nyc and if you live in New York, or really if you live in anywhere, um, I would be happy for you to donate to the campaign. If you live in New York, though, uh, it's matched six to one. So if you donate $100, the campaign gets another 600 from the city for 700 in total. It's awesome, and it helps Green Party candidates like me who take no corporate money, uh, helps us keep up with the um, Democratic Party. Thanks. Thank you, sir.